Hello, welcome to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Here you will find cutting-edge information provided by the best experts in the world so you can learn how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Bruno de Gama is the Brazilian Health Nut in a mission to solve the problems you have when trying to lose weight forever. He is a nutritional therapy practitioner, a certified personal trainer, and a holistic lifestyle coach by the Czech Institute. Don't forget to say hello and sign up to our free newsletter at www.brazilianhealthnet.com. Let's go. All right, thank you so much for being here with me, Chris, today. I super appreciate your time. Uh, before we start, can you tell a little bit about your background and who is Dr. Chris Marcejohn for people who don't know? Well, thank you for having me, Bruno. It's great to be here. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences that I got from University of Connecticut in 2012. I did my postdoc at uh, Urbana-Champaign University of Illinois, and now I am assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I, I have, I in grad school, I my dissertation was on uh, antioxidants and methylglyoxal, which is a breakdown product of energy metabolism that's thought to play an important role in diabetes and its cardiovascular complications, as well as many other things. And other than that, uh, fat-soluble vitamins have been uh, really my primary research interest and. Uh, of course, I'm interested in many things, but those are the two areas where I've done the most work in. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, I, I follow your work for a long time, and I, I love. I, I actually saw one of your talks on in New York City, talking about all the subject that you just mentioned, fat soluble vitamins and the importance of organ meats. Mm. But before that, I have something. Let's start with the most important question here that I have for you today. When someone comes to you and tells you like, uh, Chris, I need to lose weight or like your friends or like the people that you work with, like, what's like the first thing that comes to your mind? How do you start this conversation with this, uh, with this person? Well, the first thing that would come to my mind is that it's going to be different for everyone. And, and you know, it, when you ask me that question, the first thing that comes to mind is that I myself uh, lost 30 pounds between mid-December of this past year and March was probably when I lost almost all of that weight. And uh, so, you know, so I have personal experience with this. And what I did was I started tracking my calories with my fitness pal, which allowed me to find the exact number of calories that I had to consume that would allow me to rapidly, or, well, I say rapidly, you know, uh, within reason, Mm -hmm. lead to sustained weight loss, but also not interfere with my functioning, particularly my sleep, because I will get insomnia if I restrict my calories too much. And for me, tracking calories helped me find exactly what that sweet spot was. Whereas before I started tracking calories, it was always difficult for me to find that sweet spot. And in general, what I would do is uh, you know, sacrifice my long-term body composition for my short-term sleep. And I think that was a rational decision because it's much more important to sleep well than it is to lose weight, particularly over the short term. You know, you, if you are, even if you're obese, in the next three or four days, you can stay obese 
and you can sleep well, you're going to feel a lot better than if over the next three or four days you lose five pounds and you and you don't sleep at all or you sleep mm. two hours a night. Um, mm-hmm. Very very interesting. Yeah. Uh, just quick here. I am very like uh, when I work with clients and people, I usually don't uh, count calories, but for you it seems that works. So uh, looking back now through this 30 pounds like that you said you lost, right? What was the main change? Was just about being more aware of what you're eating? I think for me it was, well, yeah. So I, w- I want to back up a second and just say that, you know, if someone is asking me what they would do, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this mm. method because I think that it's it's highly individual. And, you know, for, for me, I have always been a sort of data intensive person. Like think about what I do for a career. I'm always analyzing data and yeah. and so that's it's that comes naturally to me whereas there are many other people who they would be driven insane by having to track this either because they don't want to do it or because paying paying so much attention to that is going to make them neurotic about it you know there are yeah, there are that's myself there are people who <laughs> who shouldn't weigh themselves every day because it will drive them neurotic whereas for me, you know, weighing myself every day or even for a while I was taking my waist circumference every morning and I felt like it was really valuable to have that information. But, you know, uh, that information when it's coming in on a daily basis can create a lot of noise. And if you don't have a statistics background, you can you can be fooled by the noise that it's generating. So it could do more harm than good for a lot of people. Whereas, you know, if you if you have enough background in tracking things or in statistics, you'll see the noise for what it is and you will look at the long-term trend, but you but you can still, you know, have the daily data as a as a means of if it's carefully interpreted, helping you fine-tune things. Um I think, you know, when I look back at it, I th- to answer your question, I don't think that it was about making me conscious of what I was eating. I think it was about making what my choices much more precise. So I was always able to have a sense of how hungry I am, uh, but my sense of satiety and my sense of hunger is not that precise compared to weighing my food and tracking my calories. And so for for me, because... Uh, because I have a tendency towards insomnia and one of the driving factors in it is not eating enough food, it's just the case that being able to weigh and track my food was a much allowed me to um, allowed me to locate the point at which my insomnia occurred much more precisely than trying to navigate through that with hunger and satiety. Uh, so. It, it, for me, it was just about precision, but not. There are many other people where the limiting factor for them to be able to lose weight has nothing to do with insomnia, and and, and so in those cases, that doesn't necessarily apply. Yeah, got you, got you. Yeah, for my case, I tried to count my calories and to track like you did. Probably I last like two, three days and I was like, man, this is not for me. But I have a very good sense in terms of my hungerness size and just listen to my body and works for me. So that's, uh, I think it's very important. Like you said, we have to find something that works for the person, right? Sure. So. Um, my question here for you now, it's this one. There is a lot of people in these days, 
uh, overweight and obesity is very, very, very big in the whole world, not just here in the U.S. I go back to Brazil a lot and I see this. I am always observing people, especially on the airports. Like, you know, I'm always looking and there is a lot of, you know, people are changing a lot. So my question here is, do you think that everybody can lose weight or there is like some genetic part as well there? Comparing for people, for example, who have gained some weight throughout the years, like let's say on their 20s, and then when they, once they wake up, they like, oh my God, I've been putting weight for the last 10 years. Comparing to a person who was already always suffering with obesity throughout their whole life since childhood. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Well, there's definitely variation between people and how they respond to practically everything, and weight loss is no exception to that. I think, you know, if you take an if you take an obesogenic environment, which is what we've created, then you, then what you will primarily see is the genetic variation between people because there's not as much variation in the environment. Uh, if you if you take your analysis differently, you could look over time, for example, how have things changed over the last century? And there's been very little change in genetics over the last century and a very large change in obesity over the last century. And any rational person would have to conclude that primarily what's dri driving that is the change of our environment from a relatively leanness-promoting environment to an obesogenic environment. Uh, so I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's really the environment. And when I say environment, I, you know, I'm not just talking about the things you can't control. I'm also talking about the things that you can control. So your immediate environment is you know, primarily your food choices and your activity choices and, and, and those things. But obviously the external environment has a huge impact on that because you kind of have to go out of your way to make food choices and activity choices that are not obesogenic, whereas a century ago that, you know, that wasn't the case. If you just sort of floated through life like everyone does, you just by nature of the environment, you would be making uh, you would be naturally making the bulk of your choices in ways that promote leanness. So I think, you know, certainly we're all in a particular environment. And, and so what is it's going to feel like the primary issue is genetic variation and how people differ. Um, but ultimately, all you need to do is make the right choices to recreate the environment. And I think that will allow most people to be able to achieve the body composition that they want. Mm -hmm. Got you. Uh, Chris, I've been doing a lot of reading lately about you know, why people don't achieve long-term health, weight loss and health in general, right? And I came across this obesity paradox. And probably you have heard of that. I was reading also in Stefan Guyonet's um, website uh, a little bit about this as well. And... What do you think about this? You know, when people, there is uh, researchers saying people who are overweight actually live more than lean people. You know, this difference between lean people, overweight, and obesity in terms of health and longevity. Um, that's, you know, to be honest, that's not something that I've studied in great detail. Um, so you're asking me why is it that people who are slightly overweight might live longer? Yeah, do you, do you believe in that first of well, all? Well, I, I mean, Stephen, I yeah, I'm sorry. What? Go ahead. What's Stefan's opinion on that? Yeah, Stefan was uh, actually was saying that he doesn't believe in that because most of our researchers, uh, the, the research was just like observers, uh, observant. It was not like the 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 
the way they did the research was not accurate, right? So that's his opinion on that. So I just I wanna would, I ask mean, your I would, Yeah, I mean, I would have to look in more detail at that. Um, my, you know, my uh, the big questions that come to my mind would be uh, how carefully was that adjusted for things like smoking and stuff like that. But I exactly. But to be that's honest, I, I would have to look at the paper to see how carefully they controlled for that. Um, but I mean, definitely there are pl plenty of things and, you know, smoking rates have declined, but probably still the most common thing that causes leanness and terrible damage to your health is smoking. Uh, but mm -hmm. there, you know, there are other things too. So you would want to look at, um, at what point was that starting to be measured and what were the conditions of the people in, you know, like if you started with a, uh, if you started with like a group of cancer patients, I would be yes. amazed if it weren't the case that the more and more body weight that you had, the greater your survival and the more and more weight that you lost, the more likely you were to die. But that's because you're talking about a disease that can, that can, whether it's the disease or the treatment or whatever can, you know, lead to wasting of body tissues as part of the pathogenic process. So I, you know, I, I mean, I don't, um, I, I just, I'm not familiar enough with the research to leave you with a definitive opinion, but I would have a lot of questions such as those swirling around in my mind before I would accept that. I think that, um, I think that the, you know, overall we have a lot of mechanistic understandings as well as observational evidence. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that you can be metabolically healthy and obese, uh, but it's also pretty clear that that's the minority case and that one of the primary drivers of metabolic dysfunction is obesity. And I, you know, I'll, I'll make a caveat with that in that I don't actually think it's obesity per se that's contributing to disease. Like, I don't think it's actually the mass of fat tissue that someone is carrying. But mm -hmm. if I say that ob obesity is contributing to a disease, it's really a proxy for a more sophisticated understanding that chronic positive energy balance that taxes the ability of the body to burn or store that energy is what's causing metabolic dysfunction. So there may be some people... And, you know, clearly it's very, I'm sure you, most of your listeners are, are aware, for example, that where you carry your body fat makes a difference in this. But there's, right. it's also the case that if you took the exact same fat compartment between two people, um, so some people just for, you know, the context in which this is operating are going to have a better, they're, they're, the infrastructure of their fat tissue will be better able to accommodate a certain amount of fat mass without uh, without the fat mass crowding into itself so much that the uh, the supply of blood and oxygen and nutrients is compromised. So one of the critical fact, if we look at the animal evidence, experimental animal evidence, I think we're converging on the conclusion that one of the critical factors that's causing metabolic dysfunction is that as adipose tissue stores more and more energy, eventually the infrastructure of the adipose tissue is taxed to the point where it, it can't accommodate greater expansion of the adipose tissue. And so particularly inside the inside that tissue where you, you know, as opposed to on the surface, the more you get towards the center of that fat mass, you have 
fat cells that are expanding into each other and essentially crushing each other, or they're expanding up against a wall of proteoglycans, which is basically the, the protein sugar-based infrastructure of the fat tissue. And as they get all smushed together, you can't fit blood vessels in to adequately oxygenate the tissue. And so the cells become hypoxic, meaning they're not getting enough oxygen. And because they're not getting enough oxygen and nutrients, they go into a metabolic crisis and they call on the immune system for help. The immune system comes and tries to remodel the adipose tissue to better accommodate expanding fat tissue, but if it can't, then it send, you know it signals the whole body that there's a metabolic crisis and that the emergency is to somehow deal with this adipose tissue by getting rid of that energy or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it can do. And I think, you know, in if you take two if you take two people, just because of the way their body is built and the way the fat tissue was uh, either through genetic reasons or in the process of their development, the way the infrastructure was built, you know, some some people are just going to have a different tipping point of how much fat can they accumulate before their body is in general is in a metabolic crisis. So, um, so you know, I want to be clear that it's I don't think that it's the amount of fat mass that's causing the metabolic dysfunction, but it's we still have a very well-developed mechanistic understanding of how chronic positive energy balance and cellular energy load is a critical factor in driving metabolic dysfunction and some of the most common degenerative diseases that our society faces. So I think that it we I would be really, really careful before I would take the research that you mentioned and sort of overturn all of that understanding and conclude that people shouldn't try to positively affect their body yeah. composition. Yeah, that's Stefan's take as well. And so, Chris, what about the skinny fat? I have this friend, his name is Kevin, and Kevin eats uh, sugar, he eats refined carbohydrates a lot, and like he pretty much eats anything, right? And he doesn't put one pound. And I know more than more than one person like that. You know, it's not just Kevin. What's happening with this kind of people? And are they still in dangerous for chronic disease as well? Uh, he, I mean, he's skinny fat, or he's just eats a lot of food he's like, and he's skinny. He's very skinny. So I mean, I but, think of skinny fat as uh, pretty lanky, not much muscle mass, not much. Uh, fat tissue in most of the body and then like kind of a, a pork belly, pot belly, beer belly kind of thing going on. Yes, exactly. Oh, well, if that's, I mean, so I, I think there's a subcategory of people who can just eat whatever they want and they won't gain any fat, but that's different from the subcategory of people who eat like crap and partly as a result of that get accumulate fat specifically in the visceral abdominal area and otherwise appear skinny. I think that's mm -hmm. like the worst I think that's like the worst <laughs> outcome you can possibly have. And actually I was pretty skinny fat in the last couple of years and I think you know some people who who when I tell them that I lost 30 pounds this past year are like what you had 30 pounds to lose. And <laughs> uh and you know so part of part of the issue for me was I have to get really fat before anyone notices that I'm fat. I mean during the during the period where I was under you know, severe work stress, severe emotional stress, wasn't sleeping a lot, uh, was working too much, wasn't working out. I, I actually, there was a period of time where I put seven inches on my waist in the course of a few months. 
And, you know, yeah, people would look at me and they would realize that I wasn't as lean as before. But I think that I I didn't look as uh, as overweight as many other people would. And I think even if you looked at me with my shirt off, I was still at the, you know, border of having almost having like a blurry six pack even when I had put all this weight on me. And, and I think it was because so I have a tendency that when I do accumulate too much fat, so much of it is visceral abdominal fat and mm. so little of it is subcutaneous fat that, you know, I'm, I'm really, really hiding it. But yeah. that visceral abdominal fat is the worst fat that you can possibly accumulate from the perspective of what's going to contribute to metabolic dysfunction. So, you know, I think it was really damaging my health in a very acute way and leaning out really has positively impacted my health in a wide variety of ways. Uh, and, you know, I, and like the change is visible in me, but, um, but there are, you know, there are a lot of other people who look worse than I did in terms of having like belly rolls and, 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 you know, visible outward visible signs from having, uh, so much subcutaneous fat and they may be metabolically healthier than I was in that condition because they aren't accumulating the visceral abdominal fat. So, um, yes, I got to talk to Kevin. Yeah. Yes. I got to talk to Kevin about that. <laughs> Explain what's going on. Hey, what's up, guys? Brunda Gama here, Brazilian Health Nut. And let's take a little break from the show because I want to offer you something very, very special, okay? So if you go to BrazilianHealthNut.com and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, you find a place that you can claim your free strategy call with me. Or you can just send me an email at Bruno at BrazilianHealthNut.com and tell me that you want to schedule your free call, okay? During this call, we are going to develop a strategy that works for your kind of body and lifestyle because remember that we all different. So go ahead and do that now because spots are limited, okay? So now let's get back to the show. So Chris, let's change a little bit of subjects here. I was listening to your podcast last week and also to Ben's Greenfield podcast that you, you were a guest there. And you also wrote this article called Sugar is the Ultimate, ultimate Antioxidant and Insulin Will Make You Younger. <laughs> so let, let's talk about carbohydrates because sure. there is a lot of talk nowadays about you know, following a low-carbohydrate diet. Everybody you know, trying to to cut the carbs, to, to lose weight, right? So what's your take on that? I mean, I, I know we can talk for a long period of uh, time here about just carbohydrates, but let's try to summarize here the main, the main takes. Well, in terms of weight loss, I, you know, I, I don't think that... Uh, well, there, I, there's a couple ways to look at it. So we talked before about everyone has their own sort of approach that's going to work for weight loss. And for some people... I think for the large bulk of people, what they have to do to achieve weight loss is to rearrange their psychological habits and their practices in a way that is uh, going to make them consume a caloric deficit and still feel satiated and still feel energetic. And so for some people, it may be that a low-carb diet is the most effective strategy for them to do that. And if that's the case, those people are going to lose weight on the low-carb diet and they're probably going to improve their health as a result from the change of body composition. But the theory that you have to restrict carbohydrates to lose weight because insulin is what makes you fat is, 
in my opinion, is is so wrong that it's uh, like it's just totally wrong. Um, mm. And that's because I mean more about that. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I mean, what happens when you eat car- what happens if you eat carbohydrate is carbo a carbohydrate rich meal is the most effective way to maximize intracellular insulin signaling. Carbohydrate is not the only macronutrient that stimulates insulin. And notably, protein, for example, is uh, also in, uh, stimulates insulin. But protein stimulates insulin because insulin helps get certain am- amino acids into cells. And protein also stimulates glucagon, which counteracts most of the effects of insulin besides getting those amino acids into the cell. So protein stimulating insulin and glucagon is a way to get the amino acids into the cells without causing low blood sugar. And so in general, what we could say is insulin signaling in terms of net intracellular insulin signaling, all of the downstream effects of in, that we associate with insulin in a biochemical sense, that basically comes down to eating a carbohydrate-rich meal. But in terms of energy metabolism, what is that insulin doing? Well, if you eat a certain amount of carbohydrate, you will get a you will get a proportional insulin response, and that insulin will, in proportion to that amount of carbohydrate, stop you from le- releasing free fatty acids from adipose tissue and cause you to store any fat in the meal in adipose tissue. But what does insulin also do? Insulin also stimulates the downstream metabolism of carbohydrate. So insulin doesn't just bring carbohydrate into the cell. Insulin also stimulates glycolysis, which is splitting glucose in half and slightly oxidizing it to a compound called pyruvate. It also stimulates the downstream metabolism of pyruvate to enter the TCA cycle, which is the main way that we, uh, where mo- you know pretty much anything that's going to generate ATP is going to go through the TCA cycle to be fully metabolized, and it stimulates. Um, it, so it, it stimulates the entry of of sugar all the way down into the metabolic pathway to its ultimate generation of ATP. So when you're if you eat, say, 100 grams of carbohydrate, what you're doing is uh, the insulin response to that will basically cause you to preferentially burn the carbohydrate instead of the fat. And so, yes, if you didn't consume fat, the net effect is probably going to be to prevent you from releasing the caloric equivalent of that carbohydrate into the blood from stored adipose tissue. And if you did eat the caloric equivalent of fat with that carbohydrate, then you will stuff that caloric load into the adipose tissue and store the fat there, but you are simultaneously burning that same caloric load from the carbohydrate in in energy metabolism. So Mm. you aren't net storing fat. What you are doing is net preferentially burning carbohydrate in place of fat and and netting out with the same energy balance. And if you think about how, you know, why should it work that way, that makes a lot more sense that it should be hardwired that way than that it should be hardwired that you get fat whenever you eat carbohydrate. I mean, if that were the case, first of all, there would be billions of people across the world that eat high carbohydrate diets as part of a traditional diet and lifestyle that should all be obese and, and aren't you know, they are, those populations like in Asia, obesity is rising now, but traditionally their diet was very rich in carbohydrate and they weren't obese. But also think about it like if you're thinking about how should the body be is evolved and uh, like how could it be possible that and actually not even humans like 
most of this is, is applies across mammals at least. Uh, but you know, just think in evolutionary terms, doesn't it make sense that your body would use a hormone that responds to carbohydrate by helping you decide how much carbohydrate to burn versus other possible fuels instead of making the decision that if you eat a little bit of carbohydrate, you will net get fat. <laughs> like yeah. why yeah. doesn't that just, you know, the physiology makes a lot of sense when you view it in the correct way in terms of, yes, it totally should be hardwired that way. Got you. What about how do you go about determining now so our carbohydrate intake and also do you have any like preference for sources of carbohydrates? Difference between let's say like a good carbohydrates and bad carbohydrates? So I think, you know, I think it's a very individualized thing in terms of how much carbohydrate you need. There are probably a lot of things that we don't understand about genetics. And so your pattern of ancestry is probably influencing how much carbohydrate you eat. But I think that there are other factors that pretty much apply across people. So uh, I think that if you took someone who is 100% Inuit, where their pattern of ancestry over the last thousands of years has been shaped by an ancestral diet very low in carbohydrate, I think if you took that person and then you put them in CrossFit five times a week, they would require more carbohydrate than uh, than Inuit in their living their traditional lifestyle would. And that is because uh, your exercise has a huge impact on your carbohydrate requirements. So if you um, if you are if you are engaging in a lot of exercise that is like power walking and jogging, you're probably gonna burn almost exclusively fat through that exercise. But if you are operating at 60%, 70%, 80% VO2 max, which means your maximal oxygen consumption, as you get into those higher, higher intensity ranges, you are really going to start tapping into your muscular glycogen supply. And I think that it's, you know, it's really hard to determine how much you are exercising at X percent VO2 max. I mean, even if like I do CrossFit three times a week and I don't have a damn clue how often I'm, you know, what my average exercise at a given VO2 max is because mm. even if like I do an hour of CrossFit a week, but the the metabolic conditioning workout is different every day. Sometimes it's three minutes long. Sometimes it's 20 minutes long. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes our conditioning workout is things like burpees, kettlebell swings, and box jumps for time where, you know, through 10 minutes I'm at maximal uh, intensity and, you know, I finish the workout and I spend five minutes breathing heavily to try to make yeah. up the oxygen debt. And sometimes it's things like push-ups, pull-ups, and, uh, you know, and, and air squats or something like that. And in those cases, the cardiovascular demand is much lower. And I'm, you know, whatever I'm operating at is, uh, it, it's a totally different type of exercise. So how are you supposed to track that? So I don't think you can take a cookie, cookie cutter approach and kind of sit down with a pen and paper or even with like a MyFitnessPal app, which I use to track my calories, but don't use to track my exercise. But <laughs> like you could, like there's just, there's just no way to get an accurate measure of that. I mean, you can put on your Fitbit or whatever, but at the end of the day, you're, you're really not going to get granular enough with current technology 
to be able for for the average person that you know has access to what most people would have access to you're not going to be able to get granular enough to say like what is my vo2 max at how many minutes and how did it change and what is my total total muscular glycogen demand from that workout so what mm-hmm. i would suggest that people do is just be you know start off with the fact that if you are sedentary you probably you you can get a reasonable estimation that with zero exercise it would take about 100 grams of carbohydrate to replete your liver glycogen supply now you you may for example if you're on a ketogenic diet or whatever there are many circumstances that could affect your ability to get by without tapping into your hepatic glycogen stores, which is the glycogen stores in your liver. But as a general principle, that is the, that is what you use to maintain your blood sugar normal between meals. And so it's reasonable to say that at the end of the day, I would like my hepatic glycogen stores to be full because I want to be able to maintain my blood sugar overnight through an overnight fast without getting a stress hormone response that's going to wake me up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when I wake up, I want to be able to choose when to eat breakfast because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to be waking up with low blood sugar and an immediate demand to replete those glycogen stores. So I would say the average sedentary person should start at 100 grams of carbohydrate and then titrate it up or titrate it down according to their own responses. The average active person, I mean, you should assume that if you're doing high-intensity workouts, you could be adding one or 200 grams of carbohydrate requirement per day to that. And if you're a professional athlete, if you're, like a, if you're a, an, an MMA fighter, you could be adding five or six or 700 grams of carbohydrate requirement to that. But at the end of the day, what you need to do is just be conscious that you could be adding that much and then look at how your body responds. So if yeah. you have any any symptoms of a stress response, for example, not being able to go to sleep at night, not being able to stay asleep through the morning, having to pee too much, especially in an overnight fast. Like if you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, then three and four in the morning and you have to pee and you're like, how on earth did I drink enough water to justify all this peeing? Those are all like major signs that you are not eating enough carbohydrate. And also if you have any problems with thyroid hormones or sex hormones, whether you know you're hypothyroid, if you're a woman, you're not menstruating regularly or enough, or you're a man and your testosterone is tanking, all of these things are signs that you're not eating, that are signs that could be attributed to not enough carbohydrate. And you should just tinker with your carbohydrate until you find what will uh, fix those things if it will, and you shouldn't be afraid to add two or three hundred grams of high quality carbs to your diet uh, in in a way uh, if, during that tinkering. I realized that mm-hmm. I that that was a uh, quite long winded, and I didn't answer your question about type of carbohydrate. <laughs> but I'll stop yeah, just now wanna, in case you want to say something. No, 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 that makes sense. I, I just want to ask you a little the difference, let's say, between like a refined. Uh, white bread, for example, comparing to like a sweet potato, for example, that's what I had for my lunch today, you know, in terms of nutritional values. Sure. Um, you know, the, the benefit of the sweet potato is that it's high in a lot of uh, nutrients, you know, particularly carotenoids, but, you know, also many others. Um, the, the pro of the white bread is that it has carbs in it. The, you know, there are some nutrients in white bread, but 
it's it's not a very natural supply of nutrients like there's it's missing the magnesium that should be in the unrefined flour it is missing uh, it doesn't you know have carotenoids in it it doesn't have any colorful phytonutrients in it it is uh it, it has synthetic folic acid in it and that's kind of questionable and yep. so you know and of course like some people don't tolerate gluten and so on and so forth but the downside of the sweet potato is that it is high in oxalates and you know for someone who tolerates oxalates well that doesn't matter but for someone like me i i seem to not do well on a very high oxalate diet so i don't you know i don't totally avoid oxalates but I'll eat sweet potatoes, but I can't, you know, if I eat sweet potatoes two times a day for a week, I will start getting joint problems from that by the end of the week. So it's, you know, it's an individualized thing, but I would say at a broad principle, you can say that less refined carbohydrates and more, uh, more unrefined plant foods and a greater diversity of those plant foods and focusing on the ones that digestively you tolerate well is is going to be the principles that pretty much anyone could apply to them in an individualized way. Got it. Yes. Eat real food and then see what works for you, guys. Let's change subjects here, Chris. I was eating at a Brazilian barbecue uh, last week with a friend and you know they keep bringing you meat like all the time i don't know if you have been to like a brazilian uh, barbecue but you know it just they keep you bring all kinds of meat i'll have to and i'll my, have to go to one <laughs> yes you are in new york city that we have some good ones good options here in new york city as well uh and my friend was like man aren't you concerned about all this saturated fat and i was like okay uh just hold a second i'm gonna be talking to chris master john and he's gonna answer that for you so tell, uh, summarize for us here about this subject that has been still, like I talked to so many people here in New York City and people are very afraid, unfortunately, of saturated fats. I, you know, I think that's, you know, I, I don't promote unlimited meat consumption and I think that there are a small subset of the population that probably should avoid eating a lot of meat for various reasons, but the saturated fat content is the worst out of all the potential reasons that you could list yeah. about that. And I think, you know, the the fear of saturated fat is sort of ridiculous. And particularly the the re the rationale that's been traditionally given for it is that eating saturated fat is going to raise blood cholesterol levels and raising blood cholesterol levels will promote heart disease. Uh, but there are two problems with that. One is that it isn't high cholesterol that causes heart disease. What we have known for decades is that in someone with high cholesterol, what may be happening in that person is that the lipoproteins which carry the cholesterol in the blood are not being taken up into the cells so that all their contents can be utilized properly. So there's a metabolic backup. And what that ha when that happens, the fatty acids in the LDL particle membrane can oxidize by sp if the particles are spending too much time in circulation. And it's the oxidative damage to those fatty acids that contributes to atherosclerosis. And, you know, ironically, the type of fat that's vulnerable to oxidation in the LDL particle membrane is actually polyunsaturated fat. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you, were, uh, if you were trying to look at this, you could sort of posit two hypotheses about how this would work out. It turns out that when you eat, if you s eat more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat, you will slow the metabolism of LDL particles somewhat. And you could argue that, well, they'll spend more time in the blood, that that 
will bias them towards more oxidative damage and contribute to atherosclerosis. On the other hand, if you eat more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat, it's also true that there are fewer polyunsaturated fatty acids in the LDL membrane that can oxidize. And so maybe you're metabolizing the particles a little bit more slowly, but you're also protecting them from oxidation. And so when you have these competing hypotheses, what you want to do is test it and see what actually happens. And there were many trials that were done to try to show that you could replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat and lower heart disease risk that were done over the course of the 60s, 70s, and into the, and just kind of tapered off, but into the 90s. And if you look at those trials, the only ones that could provide convincing evidence that that was beneficial were the ones that were most confounded by many other changes. So for example, the Oslo Diet Heart Study made did switch polyunsaturated fat in for saturated fat in the treatment group, but it also increased fruits and vegetables. It also switched away from refined uh, carbs and towards unrefined plant foods. It also uh, advocated... Um, it also, they gave away free sardines, canned and cod liver oil, which would be really rich in vitamins A and D and really rich in the amino acid glycine, all of which help protect against heart disease through a variety of mechanisms. It also turned out that in the treatment group, uh, you know, people lost a lot more weight by the end of the trial. There were fewer smokers by the end of the trial. So you had all these things going on besides the dietary change that we would expect to lower the risk of heart disease. And they did show a lowering in the risk of heart disease, but you know, what are we going to interpret from that when there's so many things could have contributed? If you look at the mm, trials... Yes. Go ahead. No, yes, that makes sense. <laughs> if, you look, if you look at the trials where they only made the one change, then those trials aren't in total agreement, but there's basically there's two trials that showed that polyunsaturated fat would increase the risk of heart disease. There is... Um, one trial that they started and never finished. There's one trial that found that there was no difference at all. And then there are two other trials, uh, one of which didn't last very long, but suggested that polyunsaturated fats probably make things worse. And then the one remaining one is the most interesting of all. That's the LA Veterans Administration Hospital Study. And in that study, the treatment uh, did lower the risk of heart disease, but there were a lot of problems with that. For example, the treatment group had uh, three times as many, uh, or no, I think it was two times as many heavy smokers and 60% more um, moderate smokers in the, excuse me, in the control group that was eating saturated fat. And if you look at the, uh, at the end results when they stratify them by smoking, all of the excess heart disease was in the people who were smoking uh, more than 10 cigarettes a day. And if you if you exclude those people, uh, there is no difference in heart disease between the treatment groups if you're looking at people who are non-smokers or who smoke fewer than 10 cigarettes a day. So it's probably this, this cigarette smoking that was uh, contributing to that. But guess what? Uh, Bruno, you tell me. If there are more smokers in the control group, would you expect the control group to have more cancer or less cancer? More. More, right? But it turns right. out that it's the total opposite. So... There was a lot more cancer in the polyunsaturated fat group, even though they had fewer smokers. But what's particularly concerning is this trial was pretty long, 
It was eight years long. And in the first two years, there was no difference in cancer risk. Then between two and five years, the, the group started to diverge from one another so that polyunsaturated fat had more cancer. But then it really shot off after seven years. And mm. so what that, that indicates two things. First of all, there must be something that's either so bad about polyunsaturated fats that promotes cancer that even if you don't smoke, it's you know it's like it's better to smoke and eat saturated fat than to not smoke yes. and eat polyunsaturated fat for with respect to cancer. And I'm not advocating smoking, but I'm just saying like look at that data. It something looks really wrong with polyunsaturated fats there. Either polyunsaturated fats are so bad with respect to cancer that they outweigh cigarette smoking or something about saturated fat really protects against the effects of smoking. But the other really critical thing that you see there is that the risk doesn't wind up showing up in full color until after seven or eight years. And one of the conclusions from that, the people who did that trial was that future trials need to be conducted in well in excess of eight years. And no one ever conducted those trials. They looked at that study and they said, you know, we've been telling everyone to eat corn oil to prevent heart disease. Uh, yes. We got egg on our faces. Let's quietly back away from corn oil. And so what happened is they demonized saturated fat. They promoted corn oil. They realized that corn oil probably causes cancer. And then the only fat left was monounsaturated fat. And that was the birth of um, let's selectively look at olive oil intakes in the Mediterranean diet and olive oil became the darling of the health world. And I'm not saying olive oil isn't good. I think olive oil is great. But like the politics of this is it was really embarrassing to admit they might be wrong on saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat. So like the only fat left to consume was monounsaturated fat. Mm. And, and they just quietly backed away from all this polyunsaturated fat is good for you. But we still get this persisting idea that saturated fat is bad for you. But the clinical trial evidence that tried to show that failed miserably. So, you know, you can endlessly debate, well, what if they did this in that trial? What if they did that in that trial? But at the end of the day, like, should you really be afraid of the meat that you're eating at that barbecue because you're going to get heart disease from it? I mean, come on, like it's a barbecue. Like if you're really worried about it, eat a little bit meat, less meat the next day or something like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't think there's any rational basis to be afraid of saturated fat in meat. Yes, I think that answers uh, my friend Paul's question. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Chris, I remember like watching, I think it was almost like three years ago on a debate called Don't Eat Anything With A Face. Yeah, and I lost that debate. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, there you lost it. But I don't, I don't know. I want to still hear more about that in terms of, you know, because people talk about all the time with me, like, I said, oh, what do you do? Like, I'm a health coach. And they, 50% of the time, they ask, are you a, ve a vegan? I said, no, no, we can talk more about this later. But I want to get your, your opinion in he, uh, about this. You know, why a lot of people still uh, f are thinking nowadays about, oh, in order for you to be healthy, you have to be a vegetarian or even, like, hard, more hardcore, like, vegan, right? Yeah, well, you know, I think the more you restrict your diet, actually the harder it is to manage and the more likely you are to not be getting enough of certain things. I think some people are going to do good on a vegetarian diet and a smaller portion might do good on a vegan diet. But, you know, you're, what no one is looking at is what is the proportion of people who try that and don't stay on the diet? And I think it's really high. I mean, I've only seen one study that even tried to estimate in a sample of popula of in a sample of people what is the proportion of uh, X 
vegans and ex-vegetarians. But that study was trying to look at, you know, like how did they perceive the change and why and stuff like that. No, there's not really anything that's tried to quantify prospectively. If you follow a random sample of people who try a vegetarian or a vegan diet, what is the proportion that change over time? And my guess is that people who don't feel well on the vegetarian or vegan diet are likely to ditch it. So when you look at the health of vegetarians and vegans, almost everyone is ignoring the fact that you have this highly selective process of people who are a very tiny proportion of the population who are probably selected to do well for the on that diet in terms of what they can genetically tolerate and in terms of, you know for like for example there are some people who are terrible at converting carotenoids in plant foods into the physiological form of vitamin A that we need in our bodies called retinol. Um, That's probably me. Yeah, <laughs> and probably me too. I, I, I mean, actually, you can look it up, and, and so I'm realizing now that I should look that up. But there are, you know, there there are many people in the population. You know, half the population in terms of people with European ancestry. Um, I don't know about people with Latin American, South American ancestry, but you know, I've I've seen it quantified in people of European ancestry and uh, and Chinese and and Japanese. And out of those three, people with European ancestry are, on average, the worst at converting carotenoids to retinol. But even within any of those populations, there's a lot of people who are good converters and there's a lot of people who are bad converters. And there's even like 25% of the population are really, really, really bad converters, right? So, you know, if someone is developing dry eyes or problems seeing at night or problems regulating their blood sugar or skin problems or you know any of these things that could be tied to vitamin A when they go vegetarian or vegan like how long are they going to stay on that diet right so you have taken a tiny proportion of the population and then you have selected for the people who will tolerate that best but not only that the people who even thought of trying vegetarian or vegan in the first place are you're starting with the people who are radically more motivated to pursue health consciousness than most other people are. You know, if you were to compare those people to the general population, unless the vegetarian or vegan diet is the worst thing on earth for your health, you best see some benefit because you are taking a selection of people who are super motivated about their health and you're comparing them to people who are super lazy about their health on average. But what yeah. happens when you take those people and you compare them to people who are really as equally motivated about their health but doing other things to try to be health conscious? For example, yeah. people who are going to the health food stores and buying you know, the pasture-raised chicken and, and eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and not eating donuts and not smoking and trying to manage their Breast body. meat. Right, right. When you, yeah. when you look at those people, like if you isolate the studies that have tried to control for that by isolating the population to the people who shop at health food stores – all of the be perceived, all of the benefits that we attribute to vegetarianism in the literature on an observational level, those benefits start falling apart. So th there really is no, uh, there really is no evidence that health conscious vegetarians are better off than health conscious meat eaters, and it and there are some indications that health conscious vegans are are probably you know least best off. So for example, you know. When you look in these studies, in generally, it, it looks like even among the people who are leaning towards vegetarians, if they also eat a little bit of fish, 
those people seem to be better off than the people who are eating a more restrictive vegetarian diet. And then, you know, and of course, all of this is confounded, right? Like one study, one large study in the UK found that 35% of, of vegetarians and vegans eat meat. So, I mean, the way people define themselves as, as these things is sort of wacky anyway. Like people, you know, people who try to eat that way 80% of the time will say that they're a vegetarian. And, you know, it's the 20% of not being a vegetarian that makes you not a vegetarian, but that's not the way people, you know, self-report these things. So, you know, in my opinion, uh, yeah, it's totally possible to do vegetarian or to do vegan and be and be healthy, but the more restrictive you are, the harder it is, and the more restrictive you are, the more likely that you will run into problems. Even if you do your best to plan the diet well, because you just don't have the genetic constitution to deal with that, right? So, if you are a vegan, all of a sudden you have to be really careful of where am I getting my zinc because I'm not eating red meat at the Brazilian barbecue. I'm not <laughs> eating oysters. Where am I getting my vitamin A because I'm not eating liver, you know, no one else's either, but I'm not eating egg yolks <laughs> and I'm not eating other animal foods that would provide retinol. And so you have to be really careful about that, but no amount of being careful can change the fact that maybe you just don't convert carotenoids to retinol very well. And maybe you just, you know, need a high amount of zinc in your diet. Maybe you just need a high amount of animal food form of vitamin B6 in your diet. Maybe you just need a high amount of animal form essential fatty acids in your diet and you just aren't a good candidate for a vegan diet, right? Mm. So I, I think you right. really have to be really careful about that. And if it's only about health reasons, there are many more better ways to be, uh, you know, there are, there are many ways to accomplish what you would try to be doing with a vegan diet and retain the animal products that are going to give you a greater likelihood of nutritional adequacy. Like you can eat a lot of plant foods and still eat meat and still eat animal products. Even if you are convinced that you have to lower your animal product, uh, your animal product intake to a really low amount, the best way to do that is to eat shellfish because you can eat clams once a month and you can eat oysters once a week and you would be getting the zinc and B12 that you would be getting if you were eating meat and fish every day. So, wow. you know, I'm not saying that everyone should go out and eat a mostly vegan diet that includes shellfish, but if you want to eat a vegan diet and it's and health is a major motivator for you, even if ethics is a major motivator for you, like do oysters really have feelings? So, I mean, I would just say, you know, consider trying to meet those goals but eating some of these really powerhouse animal foods that will cover your nutritional bases and prevent you from developing deficiencies on that diet. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for answering. Uh, Chris, before I let you go, man, I, I just want to cover two more questions here uh, from my Facebook page here that asked me today. Uh, the first one is about how to go about heavy metal detox. Do you have like a quick, uh, like a little like tips for, for people who want to, to go about Doing something like that? I do not. I mean, I know I have a lot of people that I that I respect who like uh, Andy Cutler's protocol, but it's not something that I've researched, and I'm not in a position to make any recommendations. Mm -hmm. 
Cool, cool. Thank you so much. So one more here. Uh, Dorina, she asked me about bio-individuality regarding fat, protein, and carb ratio. She's, she's talking more uh, regarding like due to lack of excess or excess of certain enzymes in blood type. You know, how can we determine if you are like more towards uh, high fat or high carbohydrates? Uh, you know, you, you touch a little, uh, a lot about that before. Uh, in terms of carbs, right? But yeah, can well, you determine, like, sure. I, I mean, I would stand by what I what I was saying before is the best way to go about doing that. I think that blood type would be a really bad way to do that, and okay. I think that uh, we are not at the point where we can sort of look at a certain set of genetic polymorphisms and determine macronutrient ratios. And I and I actually I want to go even further and say we will never ever 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 be at that point, no matter how much genetics advances, because like we were talking about before, your macronutrient ratios are not just a function of your genetics. Yes, your genetics influence you. Yes, the more we learn, the more insight we will be able to get from looking at them, but we will never be at a place where we can only look at the genetics and then in a cookie cutter approach, develop a nutritional product protocol for that. We will always have to look at the lifestyle, at the clinical signs, at bl blood biomarkers in terms of um, you know, metabolites and nutrient concentrations and enzyme activities and things like that to actually understand what is going on in someone's body. And all of that will get better as time goes on. It will also get more complicated and you will become more dependent on a nutritional health professional who can measure all those things and interpret them to help you. But what you can do right now and what you can do without much intervention is look at how you feel and yes. and tinker with your diet and don't be afraid of carbs don't be afraid of fat and see what you feel best on and you know see like minimize signs that you have um high stress hormones maximize signs that you have healthy sex hormones and those are all intuitive things that people can grasp like how do i feel when i wake up in the morning am i waking up all night uh do i feel really stressed out do i do, do i have a libido and like all of these things are simple things that you can look at yourself and and make a judgment call when tweaking your diet yes so true listen to your body guys that's the the message here chris uh, so where can people find you and what's next for you now man all right, people can find me at my new website, chrismasterjohnphd.com. Uh, there I have a blog and I also have a podcast called The Daily Lipid. People can search yes. their favorite podcast app for The Daily Lipid. They should find it and be able to listen to it in whatever way they want. They can also go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast. And there they will get, you know, maybe they want to listen to it on their computer that's where you do that. That's also where I post the show notes. So if you want um, like a time-based map to see where in the episode that I discuss water, you want links to the things I discuss in the episode, you'll get that on my website. I'm also active on social media. So you can find me on face uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Awesome. Yes, I've been listening to your podcast. I think I went through five episodes. There is many more there for me to check it out. Uh, Chris, Thank, thank you so much, man, for being here with me today. I super appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Bruno. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Go to www.brazilianhealthnut.com for much more information about how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Hasta luego.